I'm Karen Lewis, and welcome to Recovery Bites, a show that gets real about recovery, where we welcome voices in the field and voices of experience. Join me for candid interviews with experts in eating disorder and mental health recovery. Listeners can look forward to new perspectives, meaningful conversations, diverse connection, and compelling personal narratives that make a powerful difference in how we live. Episodes focus on life beyond recovery, the good and the not so good, the successes and the challenges, and the authentic accounts of recovered lives. Not their whole story, just bites. If you are an experienced, well-trained therapist with lived experience, whose clinical approach aligns with the values represented in these podcast episodes, or if you are seeking treatment, we would love to hear from you. Please go to our website, karenlewisedc.com forward slash apply. All right, everyone, here we go. Are you all in for an incredible episode? My guest for today is Karen R. Koenig, and she is just a wealth of information and wisdom and experience. So as I always say, let's just jump right in. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Recovery Bites. I am so excited about the wisdom that we have coming on this show right now. My guest for today is Karen R. Koenig. Karen, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm excited too. I'm really excited to have you here. You're a wealth of knowledge, both from your own lived experience, from all the books that you've authored, from from everything. So Karen, tell the listeners a little bit about yourself. Sure. Um, currently, I live in Sarasota, Florida, where I uh, have a eating disorder and a general therapy practice. I blog, I write um, books, and I started out in Boston, where I also had a therapy practice. But if we go backward in time, consider myself half a lifetime. I've just turned 75. Um recovered from eating, which every time I say it, it sort of says to me, wow, you did something big. That was important. And uh, I was a binge eater. I was a chronic dieter for about a year and a half or two. I was bulimic. So I kind of know all the ends of it, but except maybe for anorexia. And um, I still love my work. And uh I really believe that people can recover with courage and persistence and having the right tools. I absolutely agree with that. And, you know, one of the things I often talk about is just that the courage it takes to recover. Also, though, the perseverance, this is not a quick fix. Your eating disorder thoughts and then behaviors did not happen overnight. So they are not going to end overnight. So I I agree with that. So Karen, 
you and I were talking before we started the recording, and I have so many things that I'd love to talk with you about, ask you about. You also said, though, there's there's some new stuff that I don't know about. So what what if we begin there? Tell me some new insights or thoughts that you've been you've been working on so so we get an idea. One of the things that I focus on, and I did in my last book, Words to Epi, is words. And you know, we just let thoughts run rampant in our mind. We don't categorize them. You know, we, with clothes, we do we have our, our good clothes and our clothes to wear at home, um, our close friends and people, you know, we'll see once in a while. Thoughts, no, they're just all the same and we just let them take over. So um we really want to pay attention to what we think and what we say to ourselves because what we think um generates what we say and what we say generates what we do and most of my clients are horrified when i stop them and i say you know what are you saying to yourself now you know they're, they're saying oh i was bad but they don't even hear it so my my hope is that people will start to listen more and then say what they want to say that's going to promote health and growth I also think language is so important. I am very much, for example, I'll say when a client uses words like always, never, you know, very black and white thinking, you know, or or the self-criticism, the words we use really can change, can shift just slightly the perspective that we have on a really serious situation, which can then just slightly shift where we go in that next step, just as you were saying. And so words are very, very important. And our thoughts, you know, I've often said to clients, you don't need to have any bullies. You bully yourself enough. You're the biggest bully. So I don't know if you have anything to share about that or go ahead. Yes, go ahead. I, I, I do. Um, I am a real nag and a pain in the neck with certain words. And I've written a lot of blogs on it. I've seen some of my books, this idea about should. So here's here's my spiel that I give to clients. These are external motivators you don't want to use. I should, I have to, I need to, I'm supposed to, I ought to. All of them. External. And I, the words you do want to use, I want, wish, desire, would like to. So those are internal. And science tells us from research that when we want to do, get something done, we want to use internal motivators. So this is what I do. When clients say should, I put up my little flashcard and I and they know right away. Well, wait, hang on, hang on, hang on, because listeners can't see what I'm seeing. It's a sign that says want, that you want it. And they know right away. So they cover their mouths and they go, oops, I forgot. And so once they incorporate uh, internal motivators, into their lives, then the self-talk just flows internally. I also do an exercise with them. I say, do you mind, um, would you stand up? Do you mind if I touch you lightly? And they say, fine. And they stand away from me. 
and I poke them in the back and I say, should, need to, have to. And then I come in front of them with my finger and I beckon them and I say, want, would like to. And then they get it because one just pushes us and we rebel and the other moves us forward. Well, I, I also wonder if it's not even just the dialogue, but saying out loud or to self, I want can be very difficult for somebody with an eating disorder because underneath that, they might be ashamed to say, that makes me feel like I'm saying I deserve and I don't. So what happens when you get met with that? Then we, then we talk about that. Then we talk about why is it hard for you to want? And they'll say, well, you know, my family, my needs weren't important. I had to take care of my six brothers and uh, mom had, was sick and dad was drinking. And every time I wanted something, it didn't matter. So, and as you talk about shifts, this is where the psychological shift happens that they realize if they want to live the life that other people do, they're going to have to want for themselves. And that's okay. It's more than okay. It's necessary. Survival. Mm -hmm. I think it's I think it's difficult when using the example that you just used, being so almost on automatic with. And here's another word: assuming. Assuming is a is a is a strong word. Assuming that their needs are going to get rejected, which also adds shame. I often remind clients or people you're not in that situation anymore. You're not, you're not, you're not 12. You're now 39. You know what I mean? You're not taking care of your six siblings. You're now taking care of yourself. So I also remind them that this is not the current moment. This is, this is, this is the current moment. I apologize. This is, and that leads into what you talk about, which is called reality versus recall. So say a little bit about that. I learned these terms um, from John Connolly, who teaches rapid resolution therapy. I went through a lot of the trainings, um, not, not all of them to become certified, but he really makes the point that when an event happens, it gets imprinted in our brains and the the data of it and the emotions are separate. So when an, another experience happens that is similar, our brain, our amygdalites, amygdala lights up and says, oh, I know what that's about. But it's not, it's not chronological. It's just kind of there always. That's recall. Reality is, hey, what's happening now? How old am I? What's the situation? Who are these people? So um, we talk a lot about that. And um, I don't know where I learned this. It's not original. But what I'll tell clients is if you want to, you know, if you have some old thing that happens, think of it as a train. You don't want to get on the train. You know, you know where it's going. No place good. So we'll often talk about don't get on that train, how you can stay off the train. This, the thought will come back, but stay off the train. And um, client, clients like those kinds of metaphors. I think I think metaphors are fantastic. I, I know that, that clients can resonate with metaphors because it brings it into, again, a language. We're using the word language that 
is something that they resonate with, that they understand. So I think metaphors are phenomenal, phenomenal. Um, let's let's talk a little bit. And again, this all has to do with language and how we internalize. You know, I heard you say once, um, and forgive me, I can't remember if it was a podcast or one of your books, and I'm paraphrasing, that if you grew up and your parents spoke German, you are not going to, as your first language, learn how to speak French. And so if you grow up in a diet culture obsessed family system, and everyone knows, I say this often, this is not about blaming the family system, but if that's how you grow up, you're not going to learn to love your body, nurture your body, eat when you're hungry, stop when you're full, because that's not the language that you were raised in. And so do you have any thoughts on that to expand on that? And and we'll start there. Well, in in my um, my first book, The Rule of Rules of Normal Eating, I talk a lot about beliefs. And one of the best things people can do is make an ongoing lists of list of beliefs and then go into the what I call like a consignment store. And I love consignment shopping, right? You go into the big belief store and you say, okay, this one, I'm taking this one in. And gee, there's one I'd like. I think I'll take that one home. And so you keep reworking your beliefs. And then you have a whole new set at the end and you don't have the others anymore. But again, that's that paying attention to what am I saying? What am I thinking? What's behind this? Tracing it back, as you say. Um, very often we say the same things to ourselves that our parents said to us or to themselves. I, I've often said to clients, whose voice is that? when they say certain things, is that your voice? Is that your mother's voice? Is that your cousin's voice? Like whoever, whoever had the influence on, on somebody like whose voice is it? And I think as humans, we all experience that we were all raised where somewhere. And that is the voice that we carry through. And it, it takes courage. I'm going to use, go back to that word to try to find your own internal thoughts to find your own sense of self because it is going against the grain of what you were used to. And so that is not easy. And it's about clients also thinking that this is truth, what they believe. And it's not. And that's why it's good to spend time in that big belief store because you'll see lots of things and they can't all be truth. The other thing, uh, I think what you were talking about, a finding sense of self, that is important whether you have an eating disorder or not, but it's especially important because it's nourishing, feeding yourself, sensing um, appetite cues. So if you don't have that, clients and I also talk a lot about stable sense of self, that you know, you're not always changing and is this right and is this wrong, you know who you are that um, it's a lot easier to recover from an eating disorder. And, it, you know, it's concurrent with it. I, I like that that term, stable sense of self. And I, I agree where when I was in my eating disorder, 
my thoughts went all over the place, mostly because I didn't trust my own. So whoever I was with, that was the thought that I attached to. It was their their thought. And so then when I changed who I was with, my thoughts changed there because I did not have that stable sense of self. That's a great- Yes. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Karen. I was going to agree. Um, you can't be healthy without a stable sense of self. Yeah. You know, for people who are listening- I would hope they would think, oh, I want to learn more about a stable sense of self. What does that mean? How can I move towards that? It doesn't mean you're rigid at all. It just means you kind of know who you are all the time. So if somebody is saying, how can I learn more? What what would you say, like share a little bit more that listeners can sort of grasp onto? Well, one thing I, I would recommend is I, I've written, I don't know, over 1,500 blogs, and they're archived. So go to my my website and uh, put in Stable Sense of Self, and they can read a couple blogs on it. But uh, an example is, let's say you're, you're going somewhere and um, someone is really pushing you to do a certain thing. And to not feel you have to agree with them, that you can say, gee, no, I see it really you know, differently. I don't, I don't really want to go there. Um, and, and know that that's okay. And, um, no, knowing that you don't have to be perfect, that you, you know, there's stability in knowing sometimes you're going to do well, sometimes you're not. I think a, a large part, or at least of my recovery and, and for, for most people that I've been working with is knowing that each moment of our lives or each experience is not the defining experience. So just as you said, if something doesn't go right in the moment, that doesn't that moment doesn't define you. But if you get stuck there and then lean towards, you know, binging or binging and purging or restricting, you're not moving beyond that point. And so then you do stay stuck and you feel defined by that moment. And and that is something that I always try to say to my clients, we are actually very fluid. Our lives are very, very fluid. They're not moment, stop, moment, stop, moment, stop. And that's, and, and again, I, I'm, I'm speaking a lot about my own experience in this, in this example, or I'm referring to myself a lot, but every moment I, I clung on to because I thought that was the defining moment. Oh, I, I would piggyback on that, that other people don't, define us that whether someone likes us or not has no uh bearing on our loving ourselves now they may say gee you hurt me when i when you said x and you say oh i really didn't mean to i'm so you know i'm so sorry doesn't make you a bad person you don't go from being a bad to a good person and and people who have an unstable sense of self use those words a lot so you're always the the same. You're worthy, deserving, lovable, always, no matter what you do. And that's hard to grasp onto for a lot of people who have eating problems. It's hard to grasp onto because we still walk around with unrealistic expectations of what it means to be quote unquote perfect. Perfect does not mean Every, like, by the way, I am perfect just the way I am. I still have a lot of flaws. I still have a lot of quirks. I have a lot of funny things about me. Like, that's what makes 
me perfect. And so we have this unrealistic expectation that doesn't exist. We never achieve. Hence why the the cycles of diets and binging and all the, all the behaviors, because we're constantly saying, oh, if I could just get there, it doesn't exist. And when you understand that, you know, when you when you finally get to a place, or at least when I did, where just as I said, I am perfect just as I am. And it's it's my definition of perfectionism, of perfect. I mean, it's it's so different, Karen. A relief. It's it's a relief. That's exactly what it is. And that's also where, again, going back to language. And often clients will say, you know, um, I'm not perfect. And I'll say, what does perfect mean to you? I know what it means to my last client. And I know what's going to, what does it mean to you? Oh, perfect means I get straight A's. I'm captain of the soccer team. I have a partner. And oh, so perfect for you is unattainable, unrealistic, unless it comes at a cost, an emotional cost. So I'm glad I asked you what it means because now I understand. Well, and it's good for them to articulate it too. And sometimes they'll make that face and go, oh yeah, okay, I get it. Because they can see, and that's all the external the external stuff. I also try to teach clients that even when things aren't okay, they'll be okay. Because why would you not make yourself okay if things don't work out? And um, love being imperfect. It's um, I, it's just such an easy way to live. And it's so hard, having been a perfectionist myself. Um, I grew up, my father would say, good, better, best, never let it rest till the good is better and the better is the best. Well, that wears on you, I'll tell you. And um, I mean, I loved, loved my father. I've got wonderful, wonderful things from him. Uh, but I had to bring that one to the belief store and exchange it for one that, uh, belief that's more realistic, which is I get to choose what's, I can do things poorly, but I choose to. I'm not a great gardener. I'm fair. I'm a, only a fair cook. I'm not a good at record keeping. I think I'm great with clients. I'm a great friend. So you pick where you want to excel because we don't have the energy to excel at everything. And once you pick it, then life gets easy. I've said in the past when I'm talking about something like it made me think of like when you said you're not good at like record keeping or cooking. And I'm like, mm, sounds like we have a lot in common more than just our names. When you understand who you are, I can very comfortably say, um, you know, accounting is not my strong suit. And I'm not saying it to criticize myself because I also know what my strong suits are. Just like you said, like I, I know where my strengths are. And so it's again, a difference of, of feeling connected to self, okay with yourself to say, instead of being like, oh, I'm not really good at accounting. No, I'm just not good at it. That's why there's other people that do accounting, just like not everyone's good at being a therapist. So, you know, again, it's all about sense of self and how we talk to ourselves. Just like I said, just those two differences where if I was like, oh, I'm I'm not good at accounting. Or if I'm just like, oh, accounting, I'm not good at it. It's not my strong suit. Same, same message, whole different intention, 
whole different tone, whole different perspective of that. So do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, I think tone is an, a really big thing as well. That's that's another thing I I noticed. Well, I wanted to pick up on you when talking, you said when, you know, how what you say to yourself. It's also saying it to others. Um, I, I am, I didn't cook during the pandemic and I've sort of, you know, resumed having people over for dinner. My husband and I have people for dinner. And um, so I always pretty much make the same thing. And I, I'll say to them, you know, here's the good news. No one ever died from a meal at my house. And they laugh and they know I, I don't, I'm not a good cook. I don't care very much if I'm a good cook. It's just not important to me. Um, or even being able to figure out the tip. You know, I've taken remedial math as an adult. I still have trouble with math. You know, it's okay. And I think when we do that with clients, and I do that a lot, they know all the things I do wrong that, um, because I talk about it, then they relax because they grew up with people who were perfectionists and overachievers and hard on them. So it's saying it to ourselves, but also saying it to other people. And that leads me to ask you about the difference for you when you talk about self-care versus self-caring, because I think when we're in self-caring mode, we can have a neutral look at ourselves and not judgmental and not critical. Say say a little bit about, about the two. Well, it, it's sort of how self-care has gotten defined in our culture. You know, do your nails, have a massage bubble baths. I mean, it really started with all of that as opposed to internally, it's not, I, self-care is so static and it, it is like you say, it's, a, you know, it's that moment. Self-caring is ongoing. You know, we don't say I breathe. We say I'm breathing because we don't want to stop. <laughs> so it, it's, to me, it's, uh, I guess it's a gerund rather than a noun. Yeah. Yeah. And it's true because I know for myself or my clients, when they are always self-caring, meaning getting a good night's sleep, not doing anything excessively like alcohol or, or whatever it is, um, you know, crying when they need to cry, taking a nap when they need to take a nap, going for whatever it is, then there is this constant sense that self is is okay and there are times when we get jarred out of that where like we go on vacation and we're up a lot and we we don't get as much sleep or what now people know that I'm crazy on vacation just kidding um but you know and so then we go back to our self-caring routine usually when I have a client come in and say you know I haven't been doing well with behaviors and my anxiety is high I'll say to them what's happening with your sleep have you been drinking more? What's happening with how are you how are you feeding yourself? Here we are an eating disorder podcast. How are you feeding yourself? What's happening with behaviors? Because when we get out of that consistent self-caring, that's when things go awry. And so I I like how you how you word that, how you have the the difference between the two. But also if you're going on vacation and staying up late and and doing things you wouldn't ordinarily do that's self-caring too well i need a lot of sleep <laughs> well i i i do too i do too so, 
So I actually, you know, I have to be honest with myself. I go to bed pretty early, but I was just like using that as an example. And you're right. Going out of the norm is also self-caring. It's why we go on vacation, a break from work, a break from bills, a break from this, whether you're camping or in a city or sitting on the beach. So you're right. It just depends. Again, the intention. If I went on vacation to get away from myself, so I drank hard every night. I stayed up till two, three in the morning. Then I am just escaping in a really unproductive way. If I go away and I really love myself and I love who I'm with and we stay up and we, you know, have a few too many and, and I'm just using alcohol. Forgive me for anybody who I, I'm not, I'm not saying that's the way to, to have a good time. So I, I want to be very clear about that using that example, then, well, then I'm just, then it is self-caring because I'm enjoying life. I'm not being rigid. And it applies to food too. Most of the time you eat healthy and then you go somewhere and man, that, that food is good. And you're probably not going to have it again because you're in Paris. And so you might overeat that that is self-caring too, because you're responding to the moment as long as you do it consciously and then you don't have guilt and shame after it. You know, we're, we're not, goes back to perfection. We must respond to different moments and at the same time know who we are and do it with choice. Yep. I also want to go back to something when you were saying that, you know, you didn't cook a lot during the pandemic and that, you know, when now that you're having friends come over again, you're like, well, I cook the same thing. It is what it is. What I heard and what I hear now as someone who's recovered is not about the food. It's about seeing, connecting, loving your friends, hugging them, laughing, having serious conversations. The food we wanted to be good, but that's not what it's about. But when I was in my eating disorder, the food was the primary that I was focused on. Now, if I go over to someone's house and they're like, sorry, I, uh, you know, burnt dinner, we're having chips and cheese and crackers for dinner. Great. Cause that's not the whole, that's not my intention. And that's the different about the way we perceive things from a recovered place or an eating disorder place. Same event, two different ways of looking at it. And to be honest with you, Karen, I think my I thank God that I can I live my life like that now. I don't ever want to be in that place again where the main priority, the main, the main thing for me to think about food is the food. 24-7. It runs your day. You go to sleep thinking about it. Oh, goodness, what I ate today. I'll be better tomorrow. Oh, no, that party tomorrow. How am I going to handle it? And then you wake up with that same dread. Um, it's really giving it a proper place in life, which to me is primarily nourishment um, and secondarily pleasure. And, I, you know, that that's about it. There's so many more things that are fun in life than food. And I am not a foodie. I'm a self-confessed, not a foodie. So I, I don't think I have that palate. I don't think I was born with it. And I certainly don't have it now. I know other people are, but um, it's, you know, you can enjoy food 
and have good quality food and enjoy cooking. And then when the meal's over, on to the next thing. And that that also brings me to the idea that food or abusing food or abusing, you know, restricting whatever it is, is never the thing, which I have in air quotes, that is going to take care of the problem. Food is not powerful like that. Restricting isn't that powerful. Purging isn't that powerful. The situations are still there. And so just like we put it in in perspective, like, okay, so I went to a friend's house for a dinner party. The food was so-so, but the company was amazing because it's not about the food. I've used this example a, a million times. I lost my father 17 years ago to brain cancer. And there was no eating disorder behavior in the world that was going to change the diagnosis, Karen. I had to accept. And acceptance means I feel the grief. I feel the sadness. I feel the reality of what's happening. And I accept that this is this is where things are at. And using behaviors or, you know, binging or binging and purging or restricting or laxatives or what I could just keep going. That doesn't change. Food doesn't have the power that we put on it when we have an eating disorder, whether it's to make or break a dinner party or to push away grief and reality. I I agree. I don't know where I heard this, but I've been using it for years and I'll tell people food has zero power. Go stand in front of a mirror, put that piece of chocolate cake on the floor, Put a paper towel over it. Take your foot and smash it. It is not going to respond. It is not going to fight back. It is not going to run out from under your foot. It has zero power except the power that we give it. And again, I don't know where that came from, but it's a very powerful exercise for clients who say, I can't help myself. Oh, I have to eat it. It just calls to me. It doesn't call to you. That's all happening in your brain. Food itself has no power. So, um, I, you know, I, I agree. And there's another way of using an example um, to get the message across. Karen, I, I loved that. That was that was really wonderful. And it is true. Food doesn't have power over any of us. Restricting has no power. Purging. We created it. You know, my eating disorder was not larger than me because I created it. And so we we put these magical beliefs on like eating disorders or what food can do or what food can't do. And it's it's not. There's no reality. Food is food. I, I was just thinking another thing I'll say to a client, and, but I keep thinking about it. I'll say, okay, so there you are thinking about it. And a burglar comes in the house with a gun and it's pointed at you. Really? You're still thinking about that ice cream? Your thoughts are elsewhere. Or you get, uh, I don't know how how you would be notified that you won the lottery because I've never won it. But, you know, you get notified that you won $7 million. Probably going to be thinking about getting to the wherever you go to lottery office. Food will drop out of your mind right then. So to remember that. This is also where people think they can think of more than one thing at one time and you can't. 
So if I say this to myself, um, uh, I'm just using an example, like I, I can't go out today because I look terrible. I don't, I don't know where I'm just using that. If I force myself to say, you know, there's absolutely no truth in that. That's your own perception. You are an amazing human being, regardless of how you feel you look, blah, 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 blah. That's the, the direction I'm going to move towards. You cannot think of two things simultaneously. It feels it. But just as you said, listen, if I won the lottery, no offense, Karen, but I wouldn't be thinking about this conversation right now. I would be thinking about the lottery. So this is where where work comes in. Where what language are you are you using? What language is going on? What story is going on in your mind? And do you want to change that narrative? Yes. And it really goes back to it's not truth. It's a narrative. I mean, when we look at things that happened in childhood, hopefully, as we get to be adults, we can see it wasn't that our parents didn't love us. It was how they were programmed. And so we change the narrative and we have compassion for them and we have compassion for us and we're in the present. So narrative is such an important word and choice, you know, which goes back to recall and reality. I'll just say, get out of recall or where are you? I'll say, I'm in recall. They get out. You can't function in reality if your brain is in recall. I I love it. It's It's true. I mean, it is just, that is the truth. I would like to really give a, a plug for anyone, and so many of our clients with eating disorders have had trauma, um, to go online and look up rapid resolution therapy, which is just fabulous. Um, for And there are there's a directory and there are therapists all over who, who do it. Um, it's really great for quickly resolving trauma. It's not that, oh, I have to be in therapy for seven years and drag up every awful thing that happened. It's not like that. Um, it's powerful. There's research behind it. It's brain-based. And I really highly recommend it to people. Thank you for that. Because I, I do know, unfortunately, there are a lot of people listening that have experienced trauma that that need support around it. So thank you for that. Karen, I am so sorry. We're going to have to turn, you know, we're going to have to bring this to an end. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that you wanted to share with people before we, before we end our podcast today? Um, just that I invite people to uh, read my books, sign up for my blogs. Um, they come once a week. There's two blogs in um, each email. They're short. Don't take a long time to read. Um, and I have a Facebook page, Normal Eating to join up for that. Um, and to get into therapy, I have so many clients who will say, oh, you know, I, I had your name on the refrigerator for three years and I'm finally, do it now. Find an eating disorder therapist. General therapists don't often know what we know. So get into therapy. I've been in and out my whole life and it's been a joy and helpful. So um, don't be afraid. You don't have to do it alone. Karen, thank you. That was a that was a beautiful way to end the show. Well, thank you. You asked great great questions. Oh, thank you. I I re I just I really thoroughly I enjoy your work. I enjoy your books. Your you know your every so you made it easy. Thank you, oh, Karen. Thank you. <laughs>
All right, everyone, that does it for another episode of Recovery Bites. I look forward to speaking with each and every one of you next week. Take care and stay safe. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Recovery Bites. Be sure to visit recoverybitespodcast.com to join the conversation, access show notes, listen to past episodes, and more. You can also find us by searching for Recovery Bites on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and major podcast streaming players. For weekly episode releases, you can follow us at at Recovery Bites Pod on Instagram. If you're interested in becoming a guest on the show or to submit a guest request, please visit KarenLewisEDC.com forward slash podcast sign up to begin the process. I'd also like to send out a heartfelt thank you to my producer, Jen Galvin. It is unbelievable the magic she does behind the scenes. All right, everyone. See you next week for another Recovery Bite. Thanks for listening.